Y'all need to pray for some of these people that talk in church all the time. Um, like a lot of y'all, I grew up in uh, kind of the late 90s Christian youth group culture. And so I mentioned it this morning that I had my WWJD bracelet. I had my black WWJD bracelet. And I wore that thing really until it pretty much rotted off my wrist. Um, and if you grew up in the 90s in church, you remember that stuff. How many of y'all prayed to prayer, Bess? Oh, yeah. You remember that, don't you? Uh, I had a shirt that looked like the Coca-Cola logo, but it said, Jesus, he's the real thing. Because nothing says Christianity like copyright infringement. You know what I mean? I remember um, I remember boycotting as a kid. I remember boycotting Disney World because of their stance on gay pride. And listening to DC Talk because we were all Jesus freaks. God help us. But above everything else, if you grew up in church in the 90s, many of you probably remember Kissing, Dating, Goodbye. You remember that book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye? It was written by, well, maybe that never made it to Alabama. Um, I don't know, I guess y'all had a good time in the 90s, never mind. That book was written by a guy by the name of Joshua Harris at the time. He was a teenager, and he wrote this book kind of lamenting the the modern idea, the modern American idea of dating. And he said that dating leads to sexual impurity and then, you know, some emotional hardship and all kinds of cultural decay. And he said that Christians should kiss dating goodbye and should... Uh, embrace kind of more older forms of courtship. And all over the country, um, young Christians kissed dating goodbye. And I read that book, and I was one of those Christians. I kissed dating goodbye. Of course, I was like 13 when I read the book. I didn't have any money or a car, so you know, it wasn't really that big of a sacrifice for me. But Joshua Harris wrote that book, and he became kind of an instant overnight Christian celebrity. And he went from there to pastoring a mega church with three or 4,000 members outside of Washington, D.C. And he left that church just a few years ago to pursue theological education. He said that he was not prepared for ministry. But just a few weeks ago, Joshua Harris kind of shocked the world when he posted on Instagram that he and his wife of 20 years were getting divorced and that he was leaving Christianity. And he said, quote, in his Instagram post, because that's where you share this kind of thing these days, he said, quote, by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian, end quote. I haven't personally followed Harris's ministry for a number of years, and uh, like most of y'all, apparently, I kissed dating hello the first chance that I got. (laughs) But that kind of... um, That kind of news story is all too common, isn't it? Even if it doesn't make the news. I I heard just this week that um, one of the the leaders of the Hillsong music movement, who has written some some fairly decent praise and worship music, he has come out this week and said that he no longer considers himself a Christian. And that's life for us as God's people. That our journey walking with the Lord is intertwined with the lives of other people, and sometimes those people fail. Sometimes those people fall. Those people walk away from the faith or they fall into open sin. Or sometimes they jump head first and they do a cannonball into open sin. 
And sometimes those people that we have admired and walked with for many, many years, sometimes they pass away and go on to be with the Lord. And they're just not here with us anymore. So I know and you know what it's like to feel the pain of disappointment. When you've really put your confidence in somebody and God has knitted your heart together with them. And then they sin in some way to hurt you and sin in some way to walk away from the Lord. You know what it's like to be angry. You know what it's like to be hurt and to be confused, to see somebody else's spiritual downfall or even their departure from the church or from the faith, that it's affected your walk with God. Others of y'all maybe are here tonight, and if you could really be honest, you are stuck in the past of the good old days when certain people were around and certain trends were really vibrant. And your propensity to memorialize what was is keeping you from experiencing what is and what can be. Tonight, we're going to look at a place in a passage of Scripture where one of the greatest men of God in all of the Bible experienced that exact same phenomenon. And it's Samuel the prophet. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter number 16. Now, as you turn there, let me give you a shameless plug. Uh, we have been studying the life of David on Wednesday nights in our Wednesday night Bible study time. And I've told those that come to our Wednesday night Bible study time that I think the best way to study the life of David is by studying the lives of the people who interacted with him. People like Samuel the prophet and people like Saul and eventually people like Absalom and a handful of others. And so we've been studying the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel together on Wednesday night. Lord willing, this Wednesday night we'll be studying 1 Samuel 11. And I've heard so many positive comments about people from people who have been coming and hearing those Bible studies, how much it's helping them. So let me just give you an advertisement here that if you don't make it a habit to come to our Bible study and prayer meeting time on Wednesday night, come. Um, I know some of you are serving in other places, some of you with work, you just can't get it, you can't be here, I understand that. But if at all possible, make it a point to come. But we've been studying 1 Samuel, and I knew that this passage of Scripture was coming. And this, this, what we're going to look at tonight is not the main purpose of this passage of Scripture. But it's so significant and so important that I felt like it would be good for us to run a rabbit because it is a hot trail. And I wanted to do it with as broad of a section of the congregation as possible. So we're going to do that tonight in 1 Samuel 16, verse number 1. Let's stand as we read these passages of Scripture. 1 Samuel 16, 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go if Saul hears it? He will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. You can be seated. And I trust the Lord is going to speak to your heart tonight. As you can probably already tell, First Samuel chapter 16 begins right in the middle of King Saul's epic meltdown. 
But really the story of Saul and Samuel and even ultimately King David who will be anointed as king in this chapter, really it begins decades earlier, years earlier, when in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel come to Samuel who is an old man and they say to him, you're an old man, which that's a blessing when people point that out, isn't it? They say, dude, you're old. And they say to him, your sons do not walk in your ways, which evidently was true. And they say, we want you to give us a king like all the other nations. Samuel, the man of God, immediately protests. And he says, listen, we are not like the other nations. The only king we need is God. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. Trust in Him. The people don't accept Samuel's plea. They say, no, we need a king like all the other nations. God speaks to Samuel and says this is all part of his plan. And eventually Samuel and the first king of Israel, Saul, their paths cross. And in 1 Samuel chapter number 10, Saul is anointed to be the first king over Israel. Samuel anoints him privately. The people will cast lots publicly and he will be chosen as king. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, Saul comes into the monarchy with incredible potential and an amazing military victory over the Ammonites. And the people begin to fall in behind Saul. But by the time you get to 1 Samuel 15, all of that has fallen apart. God has told Saul that he is to go and to destroy the Amalekites, but Saul, in a moment of disobedience, decides that he's not going to destroy everybody, but only the people that he thinks are inconvenient. And Samuel the prophet, when he hears about it, comes to confront Saul in verses 23 and 28, and he tells Saul that he has lost his kingdom. And at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse number 34 and verse 35, Samuel and Saul go their separate ways, and they will never see one another again. It's a sad ending to a very complicated relationship, and we trust and know that God is sovereign and that God is working His will, but we also know that human beings are human beings, and it did not have to be this way. But by the time you get to the end of 1 Samuel 16... There's a new king that's going to be anointed in Israel. It'll be decades before he becomes king, but David, the little boy sheep farmer down in Bethlehem, the son of Jesse, he will be anointed to be king of Israel, and he will go in chapter 17 and defeat Goliath, and so things will be set in motion for what happens in 2 Samuel when David himself will finally become king of Israel. So what you have here in 1 Samuel 16 in the opening verses is you have this glimpse of Israel's past, Saul, And you have a glimpse of Israel's future, David. And right in the middle of all of it, you have a prophet who's throwing himself a pity party. And God crashes his pity party and comes to him and says, Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over the past when you are missing the future that I want to accomplish? It's a good question. Samuel, how long are you going to sit here? Several years ago when I was pastoring the first congregation I served, one day when I was reading my Bible or studying or whatever, I came across this story and it lodged in my brain and I've never been able to get it out. Because it seemed like in the moment that God spoke to me and said, there are so many of the people that you pastor that are weeping over a Saul instead of worshiping with David. They're looking back over the past and they're broken hearted, maybe justifiably so. They're confused, maybe rightly so. They're angry, they're frustrated, they're disappointed, and they're so trapped over their feelings of what could have been and what might have been and what used to be that they're not seeing what could be if they would step out in faith and go forward with the Lord. And I read this text of Scripture and I think, Samuel, I've been right where you are, man. And many of you can say, Samuel, I know exactly what you're going through. 
So tonight I want to look at this passage of Scripture, and I want to talk to you about the past, the prophet, and the future. The past, the prophet, and the future, because that's what you have here in this text of Scripture. Let's talk first about the pain of the past. God comes to Samuel in verse number 1 with a really poignant question. How long are you going to grieve over Saul? How long are you going to grieve over this man that I have rejected? Now, we know from the Bible that Samuel was a good man. Samuel was a man of faithfulness. We'll see that in a few minutes. Samuel was a man of integrity from the time that he was a little boy. He lived his whole life, his whole life in public, under the scrutiny of other people, oftentimes being rejected by people. Yet he continually walked faithfully with the Lord. Samuel loved his people. He loved the nation of Israel. He wanted good things for them. And so as he saw Saul start to unravel, as he watched Saul's life and his monarchy start to decay, and he saw the impulsivity, and he saw the disobedience, and he saw the insecurity, he saw these problems come to the surface. He knew that the nation of Israel was going to suffer in Saul's downfall, and they did. He knew that people were going to die, and they did. He knew that lives were going to be hurt, and they did. And Samuel loved his people, and it broke his heart that his people were going to suffer because of the sin of Saul. But Samuel also loved Saul. Now, these two men had a very complicated relationship. When Saul was anointed king of Israel, Samuel was the most violent and outspoken critic of the monarchy. He said, this is not what God wants for us. So when God comes to him and says, I do have a plan in this, Samuel becomes Saul's most vocal supporter. I love that Samuel does his best to make Saul a success. That's what loyalty looks like. Loyalty looks like helping people succeed, even if you don't like them a whole lot. And that's what Samuel was trying to do. But now finally Saul has rejected the Lord, he's disobeyed, he's resisted the leading of Samuel, and God has turned his back on Saul, as Saul has turned his back on God. And Samuel is broken hearted about it, because he loves Saul. And if you want to see just how complicated their relationship is, notice what happens in this text. In verse number 1, Samuel is grieving over Saul. But in verse number 2, when God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem to prepare the sacrifice and anoint the new king, Samuel is afraid to go because he's afraid Saul's going to try and have him killed. Now just ask yourself, how often do you cry and weep over the welfare of people who want you dead? But that's where Samuel was because this is complicated. It's a complicated relationship that reminds us that human relationships are complicated, aren't they? That every relationship involves a connection between two complicated people. And it's important for us to know that tonight because most of us at some point or another we have had a Saul in our lives. Or several Sauls in our lives. Saul for you could be a pastor who served faithfully for years and years and then God maybe takes him on the glory or God moves him to another congregation and you say it will never be the way that it was when he was the pastor here. Or maybe it was a pastor who was so on fire and so passionate for the Lord and was doing so much for the Lord and then for whatever reason it's like a bottle rocket it just shot up in the air and then it exploded and burned out and it's gone. There's a little bit of light and a lot of excitement and some fun and then when it's over, it's over and you think, how are we going to go forward? How can I go forward? Maybe there was a Saul in your life who was a parent. I've seen this in a lot of people's lives. That they looked up to their parents and their parents walked with God faithfully and they were the bedrock of that child's faith. But when the parent goes on to glory, the child just seems to see their whole life and their faithfulness fall apart. 
For some of you, you've got a Saul that was a church friend that worshipped with you here for years and years and years. And for whatever reason, maybe their feelings got hurt or maybe they just ended up somewhere else. And every time you come into the house of God, you're looking around remembering what it was like when your Saul sat here and worshipped with you. Friends, other people are such a vital part of our walk with God that sometimes when they're gone, we think, how can we possibly have a relationship with God without them as part of it? We think, how can the church be as exciting as it used to be? How can our joy and our worship be as meaningful and as moving as it used to be? How can we possibly go on? That's part of the pain that Samuel feels here. But there's probably a little bit more in play here, too. Uh, it gets more complicated because if you read the text, it seems that Samuel, probably back in chapter 9 and 10, he had kind of unofficially or maybe officially adopted Saul as a son. He treated Saul like he was family. And it's even more complicated because Samuel is the prophet who anointed Saul to be the king. Samuel is the one who had the message for the people that said, this is going to be your first king. But he's also the one who had the message for that king saying, God has removed your kingdom from you. Saul's monarchy was tied up with Samuel's ministry. It was hard to see where one ended and the other began. And so it could be that Samuel sees part of this as like a rejection or a failure on his part. Maybe I should have prayed harder and I wouldn't have anointed Saul. Maybe I could have done my part and maybe things would have been different. Maybe I should have preached a little bit longer. Maybe I should have preached a little bit harder and Saul might have turned out okay. People may, Samuel may have been afraid that other people would look at him and say, Samuel, wait a minute, what gives? You said he was going to be king, now you said he's not going to be king. Which is it? Samuel thought you spoke for God. Why don't you make up your mind? It's likely that Samuel probably feels betrayed by God. He can't sort it out. He's probably disappointed in himself, thinking, I knew better. I told him it was a bad idea, and I still invested so much in Saul. I still put my reputation on him, and he let me down just like I knew he would. You ever felt that way? This is very complicated. And the complications mutate into pain for Samuel, so much so that God comes to him and says, Samuel, how long is this going to go on? That's a sobering question. To somebody who's drunk in their grief, this is a wake-up call. Samuel, how long is it going to be that you are grieving? How long is it going to be that you are controlled by your disappointments of the past? How long are you going to be led by your grief and not my will for you? It's a good question. It's a good question for you tonight, isn't it? Friends, it's not a sin to grieve. It's not a sin necessarily to be angry. It's not a sin to be disappointed in people. It's not a sin to be hurt. It's not a sin to be upset. Emotions are not sinful. There are emotions that human beings feel other than happiness that can be very godly and very appropriate. It's not a sin to grieve. It's not a sin to hurt. It's not necessarily a sin to be angry when people disappoint us or when sin, they sin against us. But those emotions do become sinful when they keep us from being what God wants us to be. Our feelings of anger and disappointment, they become sinful when they keep us from doing what God wants us to do. And that's what's happening to Samuel. And that's why God comes to him and says, Samuel, what are you doing? You're letting the pain of the past keep you from experiencing a bright and a good future. So we should ask ourselves today, maybe, how long, how long are we going to let the past keep us from what God wants us to be and from what God wants us to do? Now, I'm not naive enough today to tell you there's any kind of timetable on our pain. When people sin against us or hurt us or frustrate us or let us down and don't live up to our expectations, and when they break the confidence that we put in them, there's no timetable for healing on that. I'm not going to come to you today and say, look, it's been, you know, six months, you need to get over it. What's wrong with you people? But 
I do know this, that if we have grieved long enough that it's keeping us from the will of God, we've grieved too long. And we should ask ourselves today, as we look at the past, how much of the future do we want to miss? That's what God's asking Samuel. How much of the future do you want to miss? He comes to him and he says, man of God, how much of your life do you want to waste? That's a good question. It's a good question for us as human beings because as human beings, we are nostalgic about the past, aren't we? We look back and we remember how good the good old days were. I have heard people from the, that grew up in the mounds of North Carolina that didn't have anything to eat but cornbread or cornmeal fried in hot grease during the Great Depression. They didn't have nothing. They had nothing. They might get to eat a chicken once a week. They wore, I'm telling you, they wore flour sacks to school, and the way they told it, they walked uphill to school in the snow both ways. And they will tell you that those were the good old days. And I, I understand what they're saying. Maybe people were happier and more content back then. But they called that the Great Depression for a reason. <laughs> but that's the way we are, isn't it? We look back and think, man, we had it so good back then when we didn't have anything. And back then we were thinking, well, if we could only have something, we'd be a whole lot better off than we are now. We had this tendency in us as human beings, human beings to look back and say, man, it used to be so great. It wasn't as great as we think it was. We don't remember it the way that it was. And Samuel's probably experiencing that here, but what's really fascinating is that the Hebrew underneath this text seems to indicate that Samuel's not just grieving over Saul, he's actually trying to talk God out of what he's done. God has rejected Saul, and, Saul's, and Samuel's coming back to God saying, God, let's give him one more chance. Let's do something different. God, it doesn't have to be that way. He's trying to change God's mind. There's not a single person here tonight who at some point is not going to be disappointed in the way God orders your life. Eventually, all of us are going to be disappointed by how somebody turns out because of this event or that circumstance. We're going to wish God would have done things differently, and we're going to look back and say, why couldn't it be different? But I want you to hear this quote from James Montgomery Boyce. James Montgomery Boyce was diagnosed with cancer in the spring of 2000. Here's the last address he gave to the church that he pastored in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He says, if God does something in your life, would you change it? He says, if you'd change it, you'd make it worse. Think about that. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do? James Montgomery Boyce went to heaven six weeks after he'd made that statement. But think about the power in his words. If you could look back over your story or over the story of this church and say, I would change it. He said, you'd make it worse. Because God knows exactly what he's doing. That's the pain of the past. But now let's talk about the plan for the present. God comes to Samuel and he says, Samuel, how long are you going to sit here? You've got work to do. Fill your horn with oil and go. He says, it's time to get up and get to work. Sometimes that's the best thing you can do with grief is put it to work. Now, there are a couple of things that are very, very important in the words of the Lord as he comes to Samuel. First of all, it seems almost like God is being very, very callous to Samuel. You know, Samuel's brokenhearted about the loss of somebody he treats like a son. And here God walks into the Bible and says, these humans and their pesky emotions, why don't you get over this and move on? This is not that big of a deal. But understand here that God cares enough about Samuel to actually show up where he's at. When he's broken, when he's grieving, when he's wallowing in his own self-pity, when he's hurting over the past, God shows up and says, Samuel, there's more beyond this. He shows up and he gives him work to do. He tells him exactly what he needs to hear and says, Samuel, there is more beyond. Friends, all of us go through seasons where we feel alone. 
All of us experience times in our lives when we look out over our friends and say, it is such a disappointment that they turned out the way they did. All of us have looked at our lives and there have been people who have let us down and people who have broken our hearts. But when we are washed on a sea of grief, not want, not knowing what the future is, it's then that we need to remember when they're not there, God is there. That when Saul is nowhere to be found and Samuel's broken hearted, God is still with him. And God comes to him and says, Samuel, it's time to get up and it's time to move forward. Folks, when people at the church move on and leave you behind, when people don't understand why you are so upset, when you can't even wrap your mind around the pain that you feel, that's when you need to know that God himself is still there with his people. When Moses was kicked out of Egypt, who showed up at the burning bush? When Elijah is laying under the juniper tree praying for God to kill him, who showed up? When Daniel has to spend the night in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in the fiery furnace. When David is on the run from Saul and from Absalom, who is there? God is there. And God comes and says to his people, I care for you when you are stuck. When you can't get over the past. When you don't know what the future is. God says, I'm here. And he says, I'm ready to take you out of the past and take you into the future. So God's message to him is, grab your horn of oil and go. He said, there's a king to anoint. we got things to do. We can't sit here feeling sorry for ourselves, Samuel. He says, we're going to Bethlehem. The work is not over. Saul is not the whole picture. Saul is not the whole picture. Saul's really just a, a prequel to the real story. And Samuel gets up and he goes. And there are a lot of important lessons about faithfulness from the way Samuel responds to what God says. First, you need to know tonight that you don't have to be unfaithful just because other people are. Samuel could keep walking with God with or without Saul. The bottom line is, I don't have any idea how any of y'all are going to turn out. Some of y'all I'm worried about, but I don't have any idea how any of y'all are going to turn out. But... I do know that by the grace of God, I can be faithful no matter what anybody else does. Even if I'm the only one left walking with Jesus, I can still keep walking with Him. I don't have to be unfaithful because everybody else is. Second, Samuel was faithful to the Lord even though he did not know everything about God's plan for the future. You see that in this text of Scripture? He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. That's not the whole story. The whole story is that Jesse's going to pray to all of his sons out there except for one. And that one son is the one that they went there looking for. Samuel doesn't know his name. Samuel doesn't know what he looks like. Samuel does not grasp the big picture, but he continues to follow God even though he does not fully understand the future. That's what faithfulness looks like. From where we sit today, we have no idea what God's going to do tomorrow. And it would probably scare us to death if we do. But like Samuel, we can keep putting one foot in front of the other. Third, Samuel never saw the end result of his faithfulness. In this chapter, he will anoint David to be king over Israel, and he will die before David ever becomes king. He never saw the end result of it, and you're probably never going to see the end result of all of your faithfulness. But he's still faithful. What does God expect of you tonight as a believer? He expects you to be faithful. He expects you to be faithful. He told the church of Sardis, be faithful unto death in Revelation 2.10, and I will give you the crown of life. That's it. Be faithful until you die from it. That's what God expects from you. You cannot, hear me, you cannot make people live up to their potential. You cannot force a single person to come to you and ask for forgiveness. You cannot put somebody back in church 
You cannot change the past, and you cannot control the future, but you can be faithful. And that's one of the reasons that I love this chapter of Scripture so much, and I love Samuel so much, that when Saul is unfaithful, when Jesse has no idea which one of his sons should really be king, when nobody has any idea what God is up to, Samuel, the best he can, even though he's hurt, he keeps putting one foot in front of the other. He's faithful to the Lord, and he's faithful to the nation that he serves, and that's all because God is faithful to them. It's all because God comes to Samuel. It's all because God picks him up. It's all because God does not give up on him when God, when it seems like Samuel has given up on God. Friends, God is faithful to his people. He's always faithful to his people. Saul, the king, is a disaster. Samuel, the prophet, is a broken-hearted, blubbering mess. David, he's just down here watching the sheep. But God is faithfully working in and for His people. God is faithful. in church, that's why we serve Him. We do not serve Him because we like Saul so much. We don't serve Him because we understand everything that He's going to do with David 15 years from now. We serve Him because He's faithful. We don't serve Him because Saul's worth it. We don't serve Him because David's worth it. We serve Him because Jesus is worth it. That's why we serve Him. Because He is faithful and He never lets His people down. The Lord said to His people in Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandment to a thousand generations. thousand generations. we got a long way to go. And He's still going to be faithful. There's the pain of the past. There's the plan for the present. But there's also a promise for the future. Saul was a disappointment. But it was time for Samuel to move on. I like the way one Bible commentator named John Woodhouse commented about this. He said it perfectly. said the tragedy of Saul's failure was real. But it was not everything. That's it, isn't it? It was a real problem, but it wasn't everything. Saul's collapse did not somehow destroy God's work. It didn't disrupt God's plan. God's plan was still practicing his slingshot moves outside of Bethlehem. Lives, our lives are all full of disappointment. All of them. But our disappointments are not disasters to God. Samuel is called to move forward and to trust an unknown future to a known God. And Samuel had learned as a little boy in the temple when God called him. When he simply said to that voice that was speaking to him one night, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Samuel understood then that he could trust the God who knew the future, even though he may not understand it. And Samuel is going to have to embrace that in this passage of Scripture and embrace a new guy. And that's not easy to do, is it? But really, this was God's purpose all along, wasn't it? None of this had ever been about Saul. It had always been about David. What was breaking Samuel's heart was not even the whole point of what God was doing. And Samuel has to be brought to the place where he can trust God and know that God's purposes are right. Do you realize, do you realize that almost every struggle in your life simply comes down to you being able to be satisfied where God is glorified? Are you satisfied in those circumstances where God is glorified? To us, it's backward that God would take the kingdom from Saul and give it to David. How does that glorify God? God knows. God can read 1 Samuel chapter 17 where there's a 9 foot, 9 inch tall problem named Goliath and a little shepherd boy named David is going to take him down. 
God can look ahead and He sees all that and He knows all that and says, this is how I bring glory to myself. I bring glory to myself by doing the impossible. I bring glory to myself by bringing life out of death. I bring glory to myself by bringing rescue to those who are hopeless. And for those of you that have been here on Wednesday nights, we've heard that every single week in 1 Samuel, haven't we? And for the rest of y'all, you're going to hear it right now. What did God do in the life of Hannah? When she is a woman who is incapable of having a baby, and she comes into the tabernacle and she prays to the Lord, and Eli, the priest, as blind as he was and as dumb as he was, looked at her and said, Woman, you need to lay off the sauce and quit drinking so much. And she said, I'm not drunk. I'm just pouring my heart out to God. And what does God do? God brings life out of her barren womb. He brings life out of death. And that's the story that he writes all throughout the Gospels and all throughout our lives, that he loves to do the impossible. He loves to save his people. He loves to write himself in at the absolute last minute and do what only God can do so that he gets the glory only he deserves. That's what he's doing on every page of this book. That's what he did when he saved you. That's what he did when he put his son on a cross. And that's what he did when he brought him up out of the grave. He's rescuing and he's saving and he's doing the impossible possible because he is God. And in the end, this story is not about Samuel. It's not about Saul. And it's not about David. It's not about any of them. But it's about God putting his son on the throne of David. It's about the true king of kings from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, the faithful shepherd of his people who will reign on this throne forever and ever and ever. That's what God is up to in this passage of Scripture. Samuel, he's never read Matthew chapter 1 and 2. He don't have any idea about that. But God knew exactly where he was going and God knew exactly what he was doing. And what we need to realize tonight is that as God's people, if our God is able to write this story where he puts his son in this world and on a cross, and if he handles our past at the cross, and if he handles our future in the resurrection, we can trust him. We can always trust him with every Saul, with every David, with every disappointment. Now, that's not to say that in every situation, God replaces a Saul with a David who is Saul 2.0, but better. You know, that's what we would like. You know, I really like Saul, but Saul let me down, and now David's coming, and this is going to be a whole lot better. David was a mess, too. Like, you go to 2 Samuel 11, it gets pretty squirrely over there. David's doing some stuff that, you know, as a church, we frown on. Um, it's not true that sometimes you, you love one pastor, or love one Sunday school teacher, or love one leader, and you're really connected with them, and then they move on in whatever direction they go, and then later on, God gives you somebody you like a whole lot better and makes you forget about them. That's not, it don't always work that way. It just doesn't happen that way. But that's not your deal. That's God's deal. Your deal is to keep doing what God told you to do, to continue to serve and continue to walk with Him. And so God says, and we'll finish up here tonight, God says to Samuel, I have provided for myself a king among his sons, among the sons of Jesse. Here's why I love this passage. Samuel is brokenhearted about a problem. God says, Samuel, I don't have any problems. I've got solutions. He said, I've already provided the king. He said, there are no problems. There are solutions. He said, Samuel, this is already solved. This is solved before you ever shed a tear about it, before your heart was ever broken about it. Samuel, it's going to be taken care of. And here's the amazing thing. That with all the grief that Samuel had, God still let Samuel be a part of it. He still let him take that horn of oil. 
poured in his hand and put it on the head of that teenage boy who would kill Goliath and be the king over Israel. Isn't that amazing? With a broken heart, with an unclear mind, God still included Samuel in the future that he was writing. Why? Because he's a good God with a heart full of grace. And he's still that same God to you tonight. Now, some of y'all this evening are like Samuel. You're sitting around mourning for Saul, and it's keeping you from the future God has for you. You need to learn tonight that you can trust him. That he cares for you when you're hurt, but he doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to move you beyond it. Let's stand together this evening as our musicians come. I want to pray for you real quick tonight. And then if you need to come, this altar is going to be open. But let's pray. God, Lord, you know our frame that we are but dust. You know how limited our understanding is. You know how frail our thinking is. But you also know how deep our relationships go. And that as our relationships with people change, Lord, sometimes our walk with you changes. Lord, we don't want our relationship with you to be hurt because our relationship with other people have hurt. We don't want to miss the future because we're hung up over the past. We want everything that you have for us. We want to be the people you want us to be. We want to be useful to you. We want to be faithful. God, I pray that you would work that in us now. Work that in us as a church. That you handled our past at the cross and you handled our future at the empty tomb. And Lord, that is enough for us to trust you. Do that, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Altar Jesus, I surrender. While we sing, if you need to come, the altar's open tonight.